You're listening to Farm to Tabor. Welcome to Farm to Tabor. This episode, we're talking with Jordan Haywisher. He is a grass and water scientist working with the Ohio Farm Bureau, and one of my favorite kind of people to talk to about stuff in ag. Jordan grew up farming in Ohio and is continuing to work with that family farm, as well as having an ag-related day job, working with farmers to try and keep the ag economy in his state together in one piece in the big picture. In his case, it's with keeping nutrient runoff from farms down so it's not messing with the water supply, and also so farms aren't losing a ton of money when their nutrients wash away. It's one of those jobs that's part science, part networking, and talking to people, and part, I don't know, like Hail Mary. Jordan is a sharp dude. We had a great time. He's going to tell us a lot of on-the-ground stuff that's going on in Ohio. I think what I'm getting known for is just saying really rude stuff out loud. Uh, (laughs) But like... um, Honestly, like I find that younger farmers and and there are a lot of young farmers who are kind of taking over these days are like, I feel like they're the best thing that's happened to ag in like 400 years in this country. Um, So I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. I'm like, we should talk about this at some point because it's not all bad news. You just hit. I've seen enough grungy stuff and I'm like, "Ah, we should talk about this. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, especially like in our world. So like. Ohio is just inundated with water quality issues. So mm-hmm, yeah. That is, that is like my main job. And that's probably the biggest focus on, um, on agriculture in our state and probably the choice, you know, in our area in the Midwest. Yeah. And a lot of people driving those conversations and driving the chain are probably that younger generation. Right. Um, I wouldn't necessarily think that they're, you know, it's not like this huge wave of change. Yeah. But, um, I would say that it is, you know, you know, more more likely to adopt, you know, some of the practices that we're hoping that they can adopt to improve water quality. So, right. um, I don't know, what, are, what are your thoughts on, on what you're seeing in other parts of the country? So my background is I work in either food safety consulting or food safety audits. So I do a lot of like one or two day in depth, like let's look under the hood. And so there are a lot of things you can kind of pick up on that way. Like just the ways that different farms, like there's usually multiple people and how they interact with each other. After you've seen a few hundred, like you start to pick up certain things really quickly. You're like, Oh, this is one of them places, you know? Yeah. (laughs) But in terms of like, you know, we only see them during harvest. So I don't know how that really translates to what happens happens on the farm, say, during planting or during, you know, like kind of during the off season. So, yeah, I I think what I've seen. So, uh, you know, it's weird for me. So, like, I grew up on a small, um, you know, hog hog and grain farm in Western Ohio. And so I come from the smaller farm background, but I have I still have this, um, you know, I wouldn't say love, but like I don't have the I don't understand the disdain as much or I think there's a mis. Um, characterization of like the factory farm yeah. uh, or like the large scale farm just for, just in Ohio specifically right. uh, and so I see an incredible amount of work being done by like father son father son wife um, you know or whoever is there and I see a lot of the older farmers taking a back seat on the harvest on the on the grain side especially because of the technology mm-hmm. it really um, letting you know they're running a grain car or they're running you know uh, semis to the elevator or the or their um, grain bins because you know it's so automated or it's it's so techy that either the farmer doesn't want to the older farmer doesn't want to handle that or right. the younger farmer is so jacked to to be in front of all that data <laughs> right. and it's like get out of the way like I want to do this right um, so that's kind of what I've seen uh, thus far but I think it's more like just an incredible amount of, of work that can be done with, you know, two generations of farms without a lot of outside help. Yeah. Um, on something that would be classified as a factory farm or a large scale farm and maybe a non-ag person's viewpoint. Right. And that's the thing that kind of actually just had another interview with Tamar Haspel earlier today. And um, we, we talked about this for like 20 minutes. Um, people kind of have this mindset that like there's family farms and then there's corporate farms and they're completely different. And there's, yeah. you know, a lot of what people are calling corporate farms or family operations that got really specialized in one thing. 
Um, There are really just not that many farms that are run by a quote-unquote faceless corporation like with a board. Um, I mean, obviously, as you get up the food chain, definitely, like, you know, you get up to, like, the the processing side, it starts to narrow out. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's some really huge operations in Ohio that are just run by, Mm -hmm. you know, these families that are, you know, have learned to get efficient and, and, and fold in multiple generations and, and handle it. I think it's farm to farm, obviously, because it's just a matter of what's the relationship between those generations. Do you, do they get along? Do they see things? Um, you know, is there, is the middle part of their Venn diagram, you know, uh, big enough, you know, for them to, uh, to, to coexist. And, right. and a lot of times it's not, it doesn't. Yeah. But, you know, there's a lot of times that I see that they're working pretty well together because of that, you know, a gap in knowledge in certain areas. Right. Yeah. And, and my background has mostly been in produce, but um, I feel like every once in a while you run across a farm where those two generations actually mesh really, really well. And a lot of yeah. it comes down to the older farmer, like not being an insecure person. And they're like, hey, um, I can teach my skills and I can bring someone into what I'm doing without being like, well, now I don't matter anymore. Like, I feel like a lot of people are really anxious about that. Yeah. And I think it depends on just, you know, obviously we can, I mean, with farming, we overgeneralize our farmers way too often. Um, you know, for my family, we were always lucky to get along generation to generation because we had enough differences in personality, but also, um, luckily I I think I was the fourth generation to go to Ohio state off Mm -hmm. the farm. Yeah. Uh, so I think getting, allowing, generations to have experiences off the farm maybe um soothe any regrets they may have as they come back <laughs> to the apartment and operate yeah. for the next 30 40 50 70 years yeah. um, i think that helps too if you allow your generations to get a little bit more life experience before they come back and, and kind of you know buckle in for the the ride of their life right yeah well because if you do that you bring back some skills and that's always a good thing um there is this one farm in particular um and it was, it was really unusual because usually when you show up and you're you're there to do your the farm audit and everything because they, they told you to come. It's not a government inspection. It's kind of like organic where they're like, hey, we need this. Come do this. Yeah, we need it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not like you're showing up unannounced or anything. Like they told you to come. You arrange the date, you know. Um, but some operations, like most of them are just kind of like, okay, here we're doing this. This one was very deliberate. Like it was an older guy. It was the, the dad. And um, they were like this is so, I forget his name, but he was like, this is, this is the new guy. This is his first year doing an audit. We're going to have like, he's going to watch us. So he knows how this goes. He's going to do it next year. He's going to be like the guy on the farm in charge of this thing. We're getting him trained. And the young guy was like, yeah, I'm learning how to do this. Um, so he wasn't the son. He was a son-in-law and they were yeah. like, that's how we roll on this farm. We've been doing this for four generations. This place goes to the son-in-law. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and it was so cute because like, um, I guess there wasn't, I mean, you don't have the whole like, well, you grew up doing this. Why don't you know? Like they at this farm was used to training a new person. Yeah. Uh, that was how they rolled. And you're all, there's part of me that's like, why don't we just admit we're passing this father to daughter? But okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's a whole yeah, other discussion. I, but well, like, that's, yeah. yeah, that's a whole, that's definitely a whole discussion. <laughs> I mean, um, and I'm not in the position to go there probably. Yeah. Um, but for me, I, I think it's so hard to train people on physically inherent skills. If that yeah. makes sense. Like, like I joke about my first toy was a metal scoop shovel, yeah. and like I and I just know how to use that tool. Yeah, and it's hard to transfer mm-hmm. tools that you've you've like kind of picked up almost as a second language growing up on a farm and pass those to somebody who doesn't have that. Um, kind of inherent or instinctual knowledge. So right. um, it really can be hard um, to train people in this physical uh, labor task, let alone how to handle, uh, you know, food safety audit, I'm sure. Right. Yeah. It's kind of funny because I also do a lot of training on food safety. And so I've trained so many just like random office manager type people to do food safety. Mm-hmm. So like I train new people how to do it all the time and it works out fine. Um but yeah, like a lot of that stuff, like a lot of things that happen in agriculture are kind of muscle memory based and that's stuff you just yeah. have to do. And so, um, I think a lot of folks, like, especially if you're around people who grew up doing it, you're just like, how do you teach this? I just don't know what to do with it. Yeah. Um, but like this farm, because they'd had four generations of a new guy comes. So this, this dad who's trained the new guy had also lived that life. Like he'd been the yeah. new son-in-law who was getting trained. So he was like, he knew what that training process is like and he was just really excited to train the new guy. It was treated as normal to have to learn new things. And, um, 
and the the son-in-law had been a truck driver so he had like he brought in a lot of like logistics and like transportation experience yeah and, and used to like following a lot of rules and regulations and yeah sure. exactly yeah and they were just like both so happy to be there and be learning new things and i was like oh my god oh, yeah. like, <laughs> I've, I've, i have family that have other farms of varying sizes and like i've definitely found work around the corner somewhere when generational there's a generational fight or like yeah. a brother brother and brother argument going on because i'm very passive so i'm like i'm just gonna go dig a hole around right. the corner like, catch you later who yeah. wants to build fence yes for sure oh man yeah that's um i don't know like on the one hand it to be in agriculture you basically have to inherit uh, at this point or, 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 or Marion, which again is yeah. a little bit more challenging, but you basically have to inherit at this point. And you're like, I have so many questions about what that does to human capital. Um, yeah. when it's hard to get fresh blood in and yeah. And, and just like, so like my, my, uh, grandmother grew up in Columbus, Ohio. So Columbus is, um, now like the 17th, I think biggest city in the country. And it's, yeah. you know, it's always been fueled by Ohio state. Yeah. Um, and so she grew up in Columbus and then, uh, met my grandfather, like in the thirties at a frat party at OSU. And then he, he married her the afternoon of her college graduation. <laughs> um, so we talk about, uh, life comes at you fast as a yeah. like college educated, uh, woman in 1940. Yeah. She then got drugged back to a small town in Ohio and then <laughs> lived in the same farmhouse until she went to a nursing home. Right. And so like, like I remember one of the stories where my uh, grandfather's mother came by and said, do you know how to make a pie? And she's like, well, yeah, you know, kind of like probably I, embellishing a little bit, but like, I, I can figure it out if I don't. Right. And she's like, okay, cool. Um, the family's coming over. We need like seven of them. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, just like, how do you entrench yourself into that when it's not inherent? And she's like, didn't even barely have a garden in Columbus growing up. And right. then all of a sudden she's like the, the wife of a, of a cattle and grain farmer. So yeah. um, I'm intrigued by those stories. Uh, and, and I don't feel like it happens as much as it used to. Mm-hmm. Um, just for the fact that, yeah, the, the, the community is a lot smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it definitely is a, is a whole new world. And um, sometimes that world steamrolls people who come into it. And there's a lot of, you know, a lot of divorces and a lot of, <laughs> uh, pank, a lot of divorces <laughs> and pinks that come out of those relationships, I would imagine. Right. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, well, it's really interesting. Like for me, like I didn't grow up in an agricultural family. Um, what if so my grandma grew up on a dairy farm that got lost in the great depression mm-hmm. and then she married a guy who actually had been human trafficked um for farm labor like in his particular oh, nice. <laughs> yeah so there was a whole thing um like there's always been a lot of labor like human trafficking in, in farm labor um yeah he was in this like the orphan trains i don't know if you ever heard of that i can imagine what they <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, basically, like, if you've seen the musical Newsies, they're like, there's too yeah. many orphans on these streets. Let's go, uh... Let's give them some hard labor. <laughs> yeah, well, like, let's have them adopted by good, worthy farm families. They're gonna work. Um, <laughs> yeah. So he got caught up in that, because, like, he was in Valparaiso, Indiana, and I think his dad was, like, a hobo. Um, <laughs> you know? And so a lot of these quote-unquote orphans were not. They had one or two parents living who just were poor. So they were like, let's snatch your kids, let's scoop them off to farm labor, he had the good fortune to get adopted by like a couple of school teachers as opposed to farmers anyway. Um, but the whole forcible human trafficking still leaves its mark on people. So, so TLDR, not from a farm family. Um, so like you basically grew up in the suburbs because my parents kind of like, um, we're like the kind of people in the working class who are like, oh shit, I better get an education and move up in life or we're going to be stuck. Yeah. So my mom's a nurse. My dad went in the military um, and learned how to run nuclear engines. Um, <laughs> just did engineering. Yeah, like, you know, like that old, that old tropey, uh, you know, family story. Yeah. Like you do. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, he was like, I want an education and we can't pay for it. Time to go in the military. Um, yeah. So that's kind of like where we come from. And so I wind up kind of growing up in the burbs and I just really liked plants and that's how I got into agriculture. And then like, gosh, dang it. If you don't, you know, like inherit land, it turns out that you have to like do a lot of weird stuff to kind of stay in the industry or, or, you yeah. know, build a place for yourself. So I've been on the road for the last three to four years doing these farm audits. And we finally, because I'm moving more to like a social media and writing job. Now I can finally grow a garden for the first time in a few years. And I'm like, yeah. Oh shit, I'm rusty. This is bad. <laughs> <laughs> so 
that's been um, fun. Yeah, it, well, I, I was a weird, I was a weird one because we had about 500 acres and um, 150 sows and did breeding stock and show pigs and stuff. Yeah. Um, but we didn't even have a garden. Like, so my mom worked as a loan officer for Chase. Right. And so we had families and stuff that had a garden. And so then I went to school and was like, well, I'm not going to be a farmer, um, but. I'll do like I'll do turf science. That'll get me on a golf course or get me growing something. Good old like turf science. Like directional a directional pathway. Right. And so I got a degree in that, and then got a um, a job at Scott's Miracle Grow, whose world headquarters is right outside of Columbus. Oh. And all of a sudden, they had me like growing tomatoes and all this stuff. And they're like, "Oh, you grew up on a farm. Like you'll be fine." I'm like, "I I don't know anything right. about this." So I got um you know I got you know trial by fire doing research trials and stuff with, with vegetables. And so it kind of grew in, grew my love in, of growing things into that. Yeah. And that has really, um, really shaped me. And then now I'm just a, you know, a cube, a cube person yeah. um, that doesn't get my hands dirty. So it's a little depressing. Yeah. Yeah. You just, you wind up kind of bouncing and this is something that I kind of, I, I want folks who aren't from a farming background to understand better is most folks in agriculture have like 14 different side hustles of yeah. which growing things is just one. Um, and it's yeah. kind of, it's always been like that. And so like you're, it sounds like you're having that experience as well. Yeah. And, and um, you know, a lot of, a lot of our farmers that are very um, conservational focused here, they, mm-hmm. they write nutrient management plans on the side mm-hmm. or, you know, maybe they, they apply nutrients or spray or custom custom harvest or whatever. So yeah, there's a lot of diversity and, and that, and that's the kind of the story that I like to, to shine the light on for some people about like um, the people that are that like kind of, you know, opine for the, the small farmer. A lot of the small farmers have to have jobs yeah. otherwise, other than that to get by for a number of different reasons. I mean, obviously, you know, uh, you know, equipment costs, land costs, whatever. Um, but it becomes more of a hobby than, than not if you're a small farmer. And that's someone who could even be farming 500 acres. So, yeah. um, we try to give a realistic viewpoint as best we can. Yeah. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with, with the small farmer, but it's not, this um it maybe isn't wrapped in the same bow as what everyone thinks it is right yeah and it's it's kind of funny because it's really sold as like oh well people used to be able to make their whole living farming and now it's different like uh 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 (laughs) yeah if you look at so like laura ingalls wilder who wrote the little house on the prairie stuff um if you read her books you come away with the impression that they just farmed and that was their life and then if you like somebody wrote a book called prairie fires caroline frazier um kind of actually digging through her life and what she was up to at various points. And like her dad was always doing carpentry. At one point he was like a justice of the peace. He had a municipal job. Okay. Laura Ingold Wilder, like as an adult, she like ran a boarding house. She was a loan officer, you know, for the bank. Like they had all kinds of town yeah. jobs and that was how they lived. Um, yeah. And, and oh, by the way, their food <laughs> was, was mostly grown on their farm. You know I mean? People yeah. were butchering animals on the farm and, and eating out of their garden and doing those things. And yeah. Like, um, obviously, a, lo- a lower cost, um, you know, food inputs for their family as well. Right, exactly. More of them, but more family members, but um, yeah, more food production for sure. Exactly, yeah. And it was really interesting because she was running a boarding house, and she was like, "Listen, you can make money running a boarding house if you grow your own food, but you yeah. can't make money just running a boarding house, and you can't make money just growing your own food. Like <laughs> you have yeah. to do both at the same time." Yeah. So that's that's just always been a thing, and I wish we understood that better because we could probably have a lot better conversation about how to make stuff work. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. Um, trying to think uh there was this lady i met once you know doing a farm audit so she was um her family had a big operation i think up in tennessee they grew a lot of tomatoes and a bunch of other things and she you know um ran the food safety part of her family's farm and she was pretty good at it so she wound up doing it for other people's farms and um she like grew up in a hill shack with an outhouse and uh she's like a straight up witch, like, like Wicca, <laughs> like pagan person, you know, and she's like, everything's going to be, she, um, the farm itself, the, the lady in charge of food safety, there was a lady, it was one of the women on the farm. And then her name was chick fish, like this consultant, you know, and she's like, everything's going to be bitch run. You mark my words. She was fantastic. I was like, <laughs> how is this person real? She, um, she doesn't drive a pickup truck, which like, if you've, 
you, you may have the same thing in Ohio. Um, if you have someone who works in ag and it's usually a lady and they all drive Subarus, it seems like. And um, right. yeah, because they could actually get up and down the hills. But yeah, like if you're working as someone who trains people on different parts of ag, like you don't need a pickup truck for hauling. All a pickup truck is good for is show off. And they're like, no, that's dumb. So so uh, so she pulls up or, you know, I get up there and uh, we're just chatting, waiting for something to get started. And I was like, nice, not a pickup truck you've got there. She's like, that's right. <laughs> you know, um, she was fantastic. I was like, how is this woman real? I love her. Um, well, yeah, there's just so many characters. I mean, even even in Ohio, but we don't have a lot of topography. So I feel like, you know, the, the hillier it gets, the, the more interesting the people are. Yeah. And, that, and that's in a good way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but there's the, 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 the wide the wide variety of personalities that we come across because I, I, I come as a water quality person into meetings and stuff and, and have to talk to them about best management practices and, um, you know, change in rainfall patterns. I don't dare call it climate change. The pill and the peanut butter and feed it yeah. to them in a way that, that they agree with because they can look out their, their, their truck window and know that it's been raining a lot more frequent, a lot heavier than it used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so we talked about that and trying to just like, how do I take the half smirk expressions from my farmers yeah. from a wide variety of, of operations and, and turn that into useful feedback? Because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sitting at these meetings with a couple hundred farmers talking to them about um, science, which, you know, they could go either way on sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and the difference between, you know, a good and bad presentation is like half a smirk. Mm-hmm. And you, just, yep. you know, it's so hard to get, you know, good feedback. And, and I've learned that in the last four years of being a farm bureau, it's just, you know, the wide variety of people. You know, there's people that are just leaps and bounds ahead of me on, you know, reading research articles and stuff. And there's other people who are just, you know, wouldn't even remotely touch it. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's rough. And then, you know, kind of my experience, when you when you come into agriculture as a food safety inspector, you're just like, well, no one's ever going to think I'm cool, so why bother? Yeah, like, I'm <laughs> going to be the, like, the, the oh, oh, my God, she's here person. Like, yeah. what, like get out of the way, or, like, I gotta, everything's going to be perfect. Yeah. Well, you're, you're kind of like the opposite of the pizza guy, right? When the pizza delivery guy shows up, you're doesn't matter what's happening, you're excited to see them. And we're, like, yeah. <laughs> the opposite. Um but I mean, well, I've learned yeah. too. Like I've always been required. Like our, like I wouldn't say requirement, but a suggestion at Farm Bureau is like, okay, dress business, business mm-hmm. casual, at least suit jacket. And it's like, oh man, like I, I have a hard time doing it. I rarely mm-hmm. wear that. You know, like I want to wear jeans, I want to wear boots, I want to wear the things that I would wear if I would come onto a farm. Yeah. So even down to like how you present yourself, can that, in that first impression with, with farmers can be you know, a big deal. Yeah. Well, it's, again, this is more of a a lady thing, but something I found is like how much makeup you're supposed to wear, like varies wildly depending on the farm region. So like I'm from the South. So to me, like what you wear in the South is normal. (laughs) Yeah. You know, just kind of like, I don't know, very light. If you go to the Midwest and it seems like if you're wearing any at all, you're like, who does she think she is? And then in California, it's like, get that eyeliner, put it everywhere. You know? Yeah. Um, Like in the South, you have to like tuck your hair in to get into the truck essentially like <laughs> yeah there's a little bit of that you know so they're again like it's probably not quote a normal amount but it seems normal to me because that's what i'm usually working with yeah. um and, and you know it just would be nice and obviously uh, you know you see this more than, than me it'd just be nice if that just wasn't part of the conversation <laughs> or the yeah. thought process like can it just be um you know uh sarah shows up at the farm to, to like hang out it's not about like oh my god her boots her hair <laughs> yeah like, it's just it's just terrible that it's you know right knock on the door 2020 and and uh, makeup <laughs> makeup levels and hair, hair <laughs> of farm visitors are, are still kind of in the forefront of people's minds right yeah um yeah but i mean the, the really cool thing about it is like we run across i mean when you're doing food safety audits and produce, like it's always the people who are treating it really seriously as a business. Um, and so you see some folks who are just doing some really tight stuff. Um, so the really cool thing about it has been being able to learn from people. And it's, I don't know if you've seen this, but it kind of seems like the folks who are the most proactive about um, not just management of the farm, but also the marketing. Um, 
who like really kind of got a good head on their shoulders. They're thinking, what do I need to do to meet my customers as opposed to what do I need to do to fit in here with my neighbors Um, (laughs) are the tightest operations and they kind of can get shunned for it because they're not acting normal. And that's kind of sad. Yeah. It's always people, you know, people always take like mystery as being bad. It's like, Oh, we don't, they don't do this or they don't come to this thing. So uh, we don't really know what they're doing. So their assumptions <laughs> usually mean negative yeah. as opposed to, Hey, like we're just grinding it out and putting our head down and working. Yeah. Um, you know, cause I, I, I talk a lot about like, you know, in the water quality world, like what, what has yield bragging done to our nutrient management? Yeah. You know, like, so like, by the, the coffee shop talk of like, Oh, I got 200 bushel of corn this year. Well, I got 189 or I got 210. And, yeah. um, you know, as opposed to like, I made this much per acre. Yeah. You know? And so like, if we were talking about net, you know, net dollars per acre, mm-hmm. uh, you know, would we be in a different world or would there be different conversations being, hap- being had? I think we're, we're going closer to that. I mean, yeah. the farmers don't want to divulge their data or their information. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think we're starting to see people have those conversations a little bit more and, and hopefully that starts to open up because, you know, we, we have a, we have a, uh, a demonstration farms project with, with, that we partner with NRCS yeah. where we're, we're asking these farmers that were, we come onto their farm and bring tours. And, and so we, we ask them to talk about their data and all this stuff. And so getting some of that, the economic information out and their, their yield data and stuff to say, okay, we tried this thing and didn't work or we tried this and it's pretty cool. Or we adjusted something um, and really trying to give people a realistic look of what's going on yeah. on the landscape. But data Data uh, sharing and data aggregation is a huge hurdle that we need to get over in, in, the, in the Midwest, at least, if we're going to solve um, some of these efficiency problems, or at least these yeah. nutrient management issues in, in Ohio, for sure. Yeah, the uh, I think it was the environmental resource... Environmental Defense Fund, that's who it was. Environmental Defense Fund um, got together with some farmers who were using conservation methods, I think, in, like, Iowa, Indiana, Illinois. Um, Like, okay, we're doing cover cropping, you know, we're doing all this other stuff. Let's look at the financials of that. So they pulled out their financial records, crunched through them, and they were like, my God, this pays for itself. And these guys had kind of been doing it just out of, like, I feel like it's the right thing to do. But I think it's a real testament to where our conversation level has been that we found this out in. 2018 you know yeah. <laughs> like we should have known this like 100 years ago well and, and it's always situational so like with cover crops we have a hard time getting our farmers over the lag period so mm-hmm. there's there's a, a certain adjustment period on the soil yeah where you're gonna probably have a drop in yield to yeah. a certain degree yeah. until you kind of get over the hump to where you know your organic matter starts to take over a little bit more and mm-hmm. maybe, you're, maybe you're starting to, to dial down the nutrients that you're putting on yeah and really that's when the savings start going but it's, it's getting them to that point mm-hmm. which makes it even harder in this in this day and age of farm economy yeah um, where you know the pricing isn't as good as what you know farmers would have hoped right um, especially with kind of some unnatural levers being pulled <laughs> That's um, such a nice way to put it. Yeah, I mean, as a, as a representative of you know tens of thousands of farmers, that's probably the best way I can put it. But right. um, you know, it's it's tough to say. Okay, uh, our, the edge of field monitoring um, that USDA is doing in Ohio is saying farmers are losing about a pound of phosphorus uh, mm-hmm. per you know or half a pound to a pound of phosphorus per acre, e. which is like forty cents. Yeah, you know, and so. I'm trying to get them to do pen to paper to say, okay, how do I manage, you know, $30 an acre cover crops to save, you know, this fraction of, of phosphorus. And so then we try to break it down. Okay. Over time, it might save you, you know, increase your yield. It might save you some fertilizer costs and trying to really fraction out the benefits mm-hmm. in soil health or whatever to some of these practices. So I think the conversation is starting to pick up, but yeah, to your point, it's pretty bad that it took till 2018 for that to kind of, you know, stick for people. Long-term usage of cover crops and, and other practices, you know, were probably always looked at as being on the fringe. And now they're like the popular kids, you know, <laughs> now, like some of these cover crops. Uh-oh. You know, what they're doing. And these guys are probably half rolling their eyes and half excited because like, that's what people, they've been preaching this for, you know, decades. So the biggest things for us, the, like the, kind of the messaging points that we have for our farmers is like, first is like follow the four R's. So are you familiar, familiar with the four R's? So Maybe. it's like uh, right rate, right time, ah. right source, right place with mm-hmm. the nutrients. So um, getting your fertilizer 
um, under the ground and your manure under the soil is like reduces your nutrient loss or your phosphorus loss at least by like 70%. Mm -hmm. um, but in doing that, you have to still minimize soil disturbance. And then also subsurface placement takes a lot more time. Mm -hmm. And so you have to have more time management and, and things like that. So trying to give people a realistic look on how you can follow those four hours. And, and another one is that aforementioned, you know, water management. So mm -hmm. we're getting 40 to 50% increases of one inch or more rains mm -hmm. in our region. Mm -hmm. And so um, this is over the last, you know, couple decades or so. Yeah. Um, so understanding that rain is coming um, hot and heavy and we're actually getting more rain. So the, the amount of rain hasn't changed since 2002 or so, mm -hmm. but it's like 30% more than what it was like in 1960. Gotcha. Okay. So more rain, heavier rain. So have a water management plan. Mm -hmm. um, try to, you know, invest in your, your grass waterways, your drainage water management structures, mm -hmm. um, increase your organic matter with, with the aforementioned uh, yeah. heavy crops. And then with all that, you know, still try to control your soil erosion because sediment going into, into waterways is never a good thing. Right. Um, it's, and it's so ever, yeah. talking to them about that and kind of trying to find these real life examples and, um, get some more peer-to-peer -peer examples. So, like, here are these demonstration farmers. Go talk to them. Come see this this tour. Come see this thing in action. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the biggest thing that we, we like to show is, so with the subsurface placement, the toolbar that does that and the strip tillage toolbar that can do that for the, for one of our farmers mm -hmm. cost them about $250,000. So, yeah. So that, that's just for them to place their nutrients differently. So they, they can fly through the field with their with their uh, VRT um, you know, the grid sampling, zone sampling, and shut off, you know, the amounts and increase and decrease the amounts throughout the field and really be really efficient. Mm -hmm. Well, now they've chosen to put it in, in, in these strips that they can plant the seed right on the strips. Right. Um, and so 250000 is nothing to blink at. But the first year they saved $80,000 in fertilizer costs. Hmm. Yeah. So great. But the scale is not scaled down enough to get to the lower farmers. These guys farm about 5,000 acres, which is a pretty decent size for That's Ohio. A bit. Yeah. Um, but, you know, getting them to evolve to where, like, yes, a quarter million dollars is a lot for something that you can do a lot cheaper, but maybe we can pencil it out. Mm -hmm. and maybe we can... Um, you know, figure out an avenue to get some payback. So that's been pretty intriguing because people kind of go through that emotional, you know, that sticker shock roller coaster you just went through. Yeah. Uh, but if we can uh, expose that to more farmers at different sizes, I think that will move the needle quite a bit with nutrient management in Ohio. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's kind of interesting that you mentioned like the emotional roller coaster part because I feel like that's such a huge part of probably any business, um, but particularly in agriculture. Like so much of it is very emotional. Um, you know, and a lot of it is also like penciling stuff out. Like you mentioned, like it's really easy to do the math on your yield and it's, it's more work to do you know, just to think in terms of profit. And then also people don't want to talk about it, but like, uh, I, I think the way we think about agriculture is it's all outdoors. It's tooling around with equipment, you know, and, and with the dirt and the plants, but so much of what actually goes into making a farm successful is about like math <laughs> and yeah. then it also like you know whatever's going on like emotionally um yeah. <laughs> so. and i'm sure a lot of it's done for them mm -hmm. you know but like even just like spraying calculations you know trying to give the right percentage of an active ingredient um you know playing with your your the markets in terms of um futures and different things like that yeah i mean yeah it's, it's probably more off the table or off the farm and onto like the you know the kitchen table more than it used to be and i, I kind of joke like as a fan i joke with my family because i can do it because they're my family but it's like <laughs> you know they look like they've been eating the farmer's breakfast but maybe mm -hmm. not doing the farmer's work as much you know uh -oh. it's, <laughs> the same, it's the same uh the same inputs for them but not the same output in terms of the physical labor which is great because they're ultimately probably be healthier in the end, but you know, it's just kind of one of those anecdotal things that, <laughs> that you know, people are not um, doing the physical work near as much. And it definitely is a mental game for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I don't know. It's kind of funny because folks talk about the physical labor, like with some nostalgia in it. And they're like, man, we, we should go back to that because people are healthier. And I'm like, uh, uh, that's, you yeah. know, cause when you work out for health reasons, you can choose when, if you're injured, you can not do a thing that will yeah. exacerbate it. 
and you go until you're tired and then you're done. And that is not how real physical work works at all. Yeah. And, and, you know, people who, you know, do physical labor for 80 years with no 401k or health insurance, it's, mm-hmm. it's not, it's not the, the, that's not the bright and shiny small farmer nostalgia that I prefer to, to yeah. back to, you know, yeah. like, I like, I, I like the, the, the more corporate version that we see in some of the farms where our farmers are protected by, you know, insurance and, and, uh, and all the things that any other business would be protected by. Right, yeah. Something I've been a little bit obsessed with lately is, like, I don't know if you've run into them. They don't have them in, in Ohio, but the Hutterites, they're kind of more, like, in the Northwest, Great Plains. Um, but they're uh, they're kind of like the Amish, but instead of, like, they don't farm old-fashioned. They farm completely modern, but they also don't do private property beyond, like, their clothes and stuff, like personal items. And so they'll have a village of like 50 to 150 people just all farming together. So they're vertically integrated to some extent because they grow a bunch of crops for feed and then they'll do like some dairy, turkeys, that kind of thing. Um, So they're farming like half the land per capita is their like family farming neighbors, but they're, yeah, (laughs) they're a lot more profitable because they like they pool resources like that. Yeah. Yeah. And we, I mean, we have, we have, you know, extended families that are like that, but, but they probably still are bigger than they should, you know, they probably keep pushing bigger and bigger. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, that's an interesting concept. And I think, um, you know, one that, that really proves out, but it's, you know, what, what has, what has, you know, I, I feel like that probably was a, a model that was used more back in the day, yeah. you know, pulling resources and, and farmers are good about that in emergency situations, but not mm-hmm. on the regular. Yeah. You know, everyone, everyone wants to do it when they want to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, um, you know, sharing combines and planters and stuff, I think would, you know, probably would pencil out pretty well with some farmers, but, um, they just don't want to miss the, that perfect window that will probably never be there anyways right. uh, to get all their, their, all their cropping, <laughs> cropping done and their work done. Yeah, and that's that's really interesting to watch is I think like kind of um, like community scale farming, if you look at the global scale of human history, how people have farmed, that's actually pretty normal. The the single family doing it on their own is what's weird. Yeah. Um, but to us, that's like the only way to do it. And it's funny because, you know, like number one, Hutterites speaking of a super conservative religious order, you know, like I wouldn't say let's copy their gender roles and stuff like that, (laughs) you know, but you can learn things from just about anybody. And, um, it's, it's so funny because like the neighboring farmers can actually get pretty resentful about them existing because they're like, Oh, once they buy land, it'll never go up for sale again because (laughs) they never, cause they never go under. And I'm like, doesn't that make you think maybe we should, (laughs) yeah. Cause if I were watching this happen, I would be like, wow, they must know some things. Let's try and learn from that and see if we can do it too. But they're like, ah, you've got to go. That's interesting. Yeah. I think, you know, the, the, the comparable Amish, I guess, in our community, I think, um, people have fairly good relationships um, with our Amish communities. It's, I think it's just a little hard when we're, we're talking about um, conservation and, and increasing practices where they may be a little bit slower to adopt or maybe just a little harder to um, convince to do certain things because, you know, they may not take federal money. They may right. um, be uh, stuck in their in the, the ways that they want to be they want to do for farming. So I know the relationship is generally good um, here, but um you know, I think can get a little bit splintered when it comes to are they doing what they're supposed to do to you know to not have you know their cattle um, grazing and and waterways where creeks are going through and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's kind of funny because I'm I've got a couple calls with farmers in New Zealand as well because again it's it's another thing where they've got their conservation issues as well, but they're really. Um, really different from the U.S. and that they have no agricultural subsidies whatsoever. Um, yeah, which is really interesting. I'm like, so let's learn about how that works. Um, <laughs> and they have a big complaint in that they, they do dairying and they do it like completely outdoors. They don't do like in the barn, you know, like animals living on, you know, under a roof kind of thing. Like even in the U.S., a lot of that is part time. We don't do it all the time necessarily. But in New Zealand, they do none of that. Um so one of their biggest issues is just cattle being in waterways because it's a very wet country. There's waterways everywhere. Um, 
but yeah, like that, that comes up all the time. <laughs> yeah, so. I know. And, it, and it's a huge issue and it's such a traditional thing for people to, to have because it's like, well, that's what they drink out of. Right. Or like, yeah. you know, it's just, I'm not going to stop a flowing Creek going over my property or fence in a pasture smaller than I need it. But mm. you know, bringing speaking of dairy, one of the things I wanted to bring up before we were talking about labor and generational stuff, I, I mm. we had some dairy farmers that, um, in Ohio that have put in like the robotic dairies over the years and yeah. and one of them mentioned when they put their robotic dairy and it was like this is the only way I'll ever have a chance for my son or daughters to come back and work on our farm yeah and I thought that was very interesting and he's like they their generation doesn't want to skip out on birthday parties and weddings and mm-hmm. um, wake up at four in the morning and do all this stuff it's like they want to they want to milk but mm-hmm. they want to maybe have some other, you know, more diverse operation and still kind of live a regular life. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. When we talk about the generational stuff. Yeah. Um, and it's like, I'm not even sure this thing penciled out for this <laughs> right now, but it was like, I'm doing whatever I can to keep the fire burning in our family farm. And I thought that was really interesting. Right. Yeah. Well, it's, I don't know. Cause agriculture has such like this bonkers work ethic where it's like 16 hour days, you know, that's, that's a light day. Um, and it's, it's really one thing to glamorize that and be like, that's how that should be. But it does break people and destroy families. So it's okay yeah. to, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's tough. I mean, I'm sure we could, we could go a lot of different directions with this. And it's like, I've, I, I am in a family that has a number of different levels of farmer um, size and, and mm-hmm. farm participation. And it's like, they are some of the best people and um, they work hard, but that can also narrow their view a little bit. Um, and really um, grind them down to maybe not as much of a um, you know happy person as they as they should be. You know, we see that maybe not in Ohio as much, but in some areas where farmer suicide is on the rise, or at least mm-hmm. um, more notable than it used to be. Yeah, and just um, you know can can really grind people down in a society that is moving you know faster and faster. Yeah, yeah, and um. You know, like kind of like we talked about so much of being successful in agriculture is treating it like a business and really kind of taking the time to go like, Hey, you know, is this operation penciling out? If we're going to convert to cover crops, like let's actually think through this and do the math, you know, farm for profit. And that takes, you have to have the time to sit down and kind of, you know, do that math and everything. And, you know, I run a couple of small businesses myself and you have to really carve time out to be able to stop and think about what you're doing. Yeah. Um, I think the right. saying is, yeah, the saying is like, you can't be so busy working in your business that you can't work on your business. And, yeah. um, you know, labor saving is like, you can't, you can't intelligently run a business if you're busting your butt 16 hours a day. Like, it's just not possible. No, it's not. No, it's not. I mean, I think and that's what the automation and some of the you know self-driving stuff and, and, and things like, and things like that, at least take the stress out of, you know, eye strain and focus on different stuff and have, and you can maybe, maybe make a phone call while you're in the tractor now, as opposed yeah. to, you know, I have to be all hands on deck in case something happens or I have to like, you know, keep it straight in the field. And things like that. <laughs> yeah. I just, you know, like doing super long days in any kind of tillage equipment or a combine or something. And you're like, just keep going in straight lines for yeah. the rest, for the rest of your life, you know, yeah, <laughs> Much. I mean, my, my dad was more of a livestock person and he always talked about I me. Mean, he farmed for like 40 years and he's like, mm-hmm. I hated farming, like the actual grain farming part. And he's like, mm-hmm. this sounds bad. He's like, um, when I go till on like a Sunday, I would like take a six pack of beer and turn on the Reds game. And, and when one of those ran out, I like went inside. He was just like forcing himself <laughs> to, to farm, you know, and I was like, man, like. That sounds terrible. Yeah. And it's like all he wanted to do was raise hogs. Like he had just such a love for livestock, but he knew he yeah. had to like, you know, be, um, you know, have a little wider spread operation. But I was yeah. like, oh, I, didn't, I had no idea that he just disliked it that much. So. Oh, man. Yeah. And I th- that was another one of the things that just really kind of got my attention about the way the Hutterites do things is like, you know, if somebody wants to do livestock, you can just do the livestock. You don't have to do the grain. There's someone yeah. else, you know, like in, in the, like the village or whatever, who maybe is into that kind of thing. Yep. <laughs> so I'm like, that, that just sounds like, you know, cause when you're, when you're doing it as a small family operation with that few people, everyone has to be a jack of all trades and you probably have to do you know, not only are you on call 24 seven, but you just have to do a lot of stuff that you absolutely hate that someone else might not hate, you know? (laughs) So I don't know. I think about that a lot. Uh, 
funny story, speaking of young people on farms, there is, there's like this watermelon farm that I did once. And, um, the like 14 to 16 year old kid in the family was manning the shipping desk. And like, they had just one big office. So we're doing the food safety audit stuff on like the table and he's at the shipping desk. So there's all these truck drivers coming in and out. And, um, at one point I said something about how country music is farm emo. And the dad was like, what? And the kid who's like, (laughs) who's eavesdropping over the desk, like busted up laughing. I was like, someone appreciates it. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the good thing about having a multi-generational farm. I mean, someone's going to get your, get your joke. Either it's going to be one that's 70 years old, or maybe it's a dad joke, or maybe it's one that's a little too cool for, for the older generation. So you you gotta, you gotta land them accordingly. Right. That's what matters. (laughs) Like, right. Yeah, it was like like deep lowland, like Gulf South, and um, like the 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 dad running the farm. It was like John Goodman. It was like you're auditing with John Goodman. Like he was just huge, and like Hilarious. every time he talked, it was like marbles in his mouth, you know. Uh, <laughs> and um, a lot of the truck drivers apparently were from Appalachia, so like they come in, and he was like, "There's something in the water up there. They're all skinny." <laughs> It's not butter, is, is what it is. Right. I was like, I think that's the meth. I don't know. You know, because a lot of truck drivers wind up doing, um, you know, yeah. you start with caffeine and then you wind up with meth because you got to stay awake. So I'm like, maybe that's it. I don't know. <laughs> so that was good times. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you've seen a wide variety of people. Yeah. Yeah. You just, I don't know. You kind of get a good view of, of how different. Like there's so many similarities across the U.S., but also so many differences. And you're like, you know, I like the way they do X over here and really like the way they do Y over here, you know, kind of like bring all those things together. I don't know. It's just been really cool to see all the different ways that people. I agree. I agree. Yeah. I don't know. Um, What else do we want to talk about? (laughs) Uh, Any any good stories about water quality that we should definitely get a view on well um you know the water quality issues in ohio uh, in the last handful of years have revolved around lake erie so lake erie's had mm. uh, harmful outcomes uh for a long time but they've mm. ramped up in recent years um all the way to a point where toledo was out of water was not able to drink their water for two and a half days in 2014 yikes and so all of that has driven has been kind of the catalyst for um, new new policy on nutrient management and just really rallying um, environmental groups and um, uh, ag groups to start finding solutions for you know these tens of thousands of farmers who essentially um, have nutrients that flow into into Lake Erie. So um, it's a very complex issue. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not as cut and dried as maybe some people would think. Um, mm-hmm. It's you know we hear a lot of. Well, farmers are just pouring and dumping nutrients, you know, onto the farm fields, and that's what's the problem. It's like, yeah, it's not really the problem. I mean, farmers aren't <clears throat> putting excess uh, excess uh, fertilizer that costs them money on the farm fields. It's more like, h- how is it coming off the land uh, mm-hmm. once it's applied, and, and and what's what's going on with the legacy of phosphorus that's on the on the land? And this is just a phosphorus thing that we're worrying about, right. even though nit- nitrogen. Um, kind of fuels the toxicity of those blooms mm-hmm. um, but nitrogen is obviously a huge issue when you go down to the Gulf and yeah. so unfortunately we've shifted our focus uh, to phosphorus but nitrogen is still you know, a huge issue so I think the biggest thing in Ohio is that we you know as days go on we seemingly have a better relationship between not only the commodity groups mm-hmm. in Ohio um, but also the environmental groups as well yeah and I think, and I think we've, we've done a good job on both sides coming to the middle to say this is a huge problem um, and realizing that it's complex and realizing, you know, kind of like I, I try to keep our farmers focused when they want to talk about, well, it's the resident geese or it's, you know, <laughs> golf course or whatever. And, and no, really, the data says that a good portion of it's coming from agricultural land because that's the majority of the land use. Right, um, yeah. But <clears throat> telling them that it's... it's uh, it's, it's their problem, but it's not their fault. Mm-hmm. You know, they could be dealing with generations of phosphorus and, and, and generations that were told by universities that use your soil as your savings account mm-hmm. and put phosphorus in there because it doesn't move. Right. Well, Eventually it does. <laughs> a fraction of it 
a fraction, a portion of it, a version of it is coming off the land and fueling these algal blooms. So now we have to find solutions um, to keep that on onto the farmland. And so trying to like almost the same thing with the climate change thing is like this is the reality. We're not throwing stones. We just want you to understand what the reality is and, and how we can help. You know, yeah. guide you to the, the solutions that work for you on your farm. Yeah. And there's not there's not one silver bullet. There's not this saving grace. There's not you know you can't just turn the spigot off and no nutrients are going to come off your farm. But here are a suite of practices that we think work. Which ones work on your soil, on your farming size, or what's your pocketbook? And just try to find some solutions. And and most of the solutions are are duly supported by environmental groups and ag groups. It's more about just execution, adoption, accessibility, and um, you know understanding of how those practices can be done on your farm. And, and I think that's kind of where we're at. So yeah. we're, we're, we're way past. Luckily, you know, Farm Bureau and other commodity groups, um, we're not deniers of ag's influence on water quality. Um, we're more of, you know, we're, we put literally millions of dollars into trying to find solutions. Yeah. Uh, and so that's kind of where we're at. Is we're in that execute solutions phase as opposed to, you know, we're, we're not pointing fingers, we're not doing X, Y, and Z. We're, we're trying to, you know, find resources for farmers to improve, you know, their nutrient management. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is, you know, um, I think we're pretty good at finding and identifying solutions and then implementing them is, is the work. It's the slog. Yeah. So, uh, and, and there's no better sector in the country that, looks at a hurdle in front of them and engineers their way around it or over it or through it or whatever. I mean, farmers are very slick when it comes to building new things, finding new technology. Sometimes they can be slippery and they can go around the way that we told them not to, <laughs> but for the most part, um, they are, are good at, you know, finding solutions that, that, you know, kind of work and tweaking things that fit their farm. And I think, um, you know, we're starting to see that more and more on uh, with this water quality issue. Yeah, for sure. Well, that is super useful. Um, oh, a quick question for you. Yeah. Um, before we wind down, have you run into anybody working with like biochar for water quality? Because there's some folks in Pennsylvania working on that, and I'm a little obsessed. Yeah, I mean, biochar <laughs> has always been like the you know cyclical obsession, right? Um, you know gardening and agriculture and stuff but mm -hmm. i haven't seen too many people or really have anybody that i come across that have worked with it widely you know it does come up yeah um but i, I haven't seen anything I mean, obviously um the benefits seem to be awesome it's just a matter of you know execution and adoption and I, i'm not familiar enough to know you know what are the exact hurdles on getting that going on your farm yeah yeah so like there's it's kind of funny because I feel like the folks who are most into it are like the permaculture hobbyist type people. Um, so they're kind of on the backyard scale and they're like, I love it. And for whatever reason, they've decided that it must be made of wood. Um, yeah. Whereas like in reality, biochar is just like any biological any material. Yeah. Right. So the I ran into a company that's like, uh, hey, how about we take a lot of this manure and we char it? Because uh, then it doesn't stink, then it doesn't, you know, um, discharge a lot of nutrients, and then, you know, the volume is super reduced. So um, they're, they're trying to get some of that going in Pennsylvania because they've got watershed issues with the, yeah. the Susquehanna and the, the Chesapeake. Yeah. Um, so I'm keeping an eye on that because I'm a little bit obsessed. I hope it works. Yeah, I mean, I think any any like cheap alternative uh, solution for manure that doesn't just put it on the ground, yeah, um, I think is going to be good because of you know we're getting more concentrated uh, concentrated animals and just understanding phosphorus more. Where it's like we don't need more in a lot of these areas, I mean, especially mm -hmm. close to the barns that yeah. have traditionally had livestock over the years have these phosphorus levels because people just you know put it out in the areas that was the easiest for them to put it out yeah um so yeah i think any of those solutions would be really interesting to see what how the trajectory is on it yeah i mean what we just talked about is timeless so it's not a big deal <laughs> true there will always be poop that's right that was Jordan Haywisher. Thanks so much, Jordan, for taking the time out to share some of your experiences and just what's happening on the ground out there in Ohio. Thanks for listening. Farm to Tabor out.